This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Thing from Another Medium, the podcast about cross-gender adaptations. I'm Adam. I'm a non-binary literature nerd who loves movies. And I'm Maeve. I'm a trans-femme film nerd who Adam has made read books. <laughs> and today we're talking about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein by Kenneth Branagh, based on the book Frankenstein, which is not called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's called Frankenstein the Modern Prometheus. And Mary Shelley's a woman, Kenneth Branagh's a man. That's what makes the movie a cross-gender adaptation. And so we're here to talk about the book, the movie, and everything in between. And Mavis, this is your bag. Vic, your pal Vic Frank, he is the guy you brought to the party. And I'm just making his acquaintance, so I think you should really take charge on this one. Uh, When he says, uh, my pal uh, Vic, Vic Frank. He really means uh, my pal, my best friend, Kenneth Branagh, who is a actor and director who has kind of always been like around my favorites, Mark. Like I just really dig on his like extreme operatic takes on whatever he's directing from Shakespeare to Marvel. I'm just generally like a big Branagh fan, a big Branagh stan. I basically assume at this point that all British uh, celebrities hate trans people, but if Brana came out as, like, pro-JK Rowling or whatever, I would literally just cry. He was in those movies. Was he in the fifth one, where Gilderoy Lockhart shows back up in the book? I remember the books way better than I do the movies. Order of the Phoenix was the shortest movie. So much was cut, so... I wouldn't put it past him. I wouldn't put it past him to come back. He feels like he would be up for it. I mean, yeah, Brana's a dude who just loves being around. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like Frankenstein is one of the definitive uh, pieces of science fiction lit and horror lit in its own way. And there are so many adaptations of this that we could choose from, almost none of which are directed by women. We could have gone with James Whale, we could have gone with the recent fucking Max Landis written one. Oh yes, that one. Speaking of Harry Potter, that's got Daniel Radcliffe and James McAvoy. One of them is Igor, I forget which one. It's Radcliffe. Well, like, honestly, both of them feel like they would jump at the chance to play Igor. Does young Frankenstein give Mary Shelley a credit? A based on credit? I have no idea. I have a feeling it doesn't. Yeah, because that movie is explicitly riffing on the movies and not the book that's a good place to start as any the reason it's called mary shelley's frankenstein is that mostly thanks to the james whale movie and how enormously successful that was people have this very fixed image of what the frankenstein story is that it's not inaccurate to mary shelley's book but if you actually sit down and read the book there's a whole lot there that no one ever thinks about like you'd cite it as It's the foundational work of science fiction. It's a very good horror story. But, like, first and foremost, I think you'd have to call it a gothic story because it's got all that stuff in there about, like, family lore and, like, the nobility and guilt and all that kind of thing. And that's the part that you can tell Branagh wanted to bring across in his adaptation, wanted to spotlight without taking away from the mad scientist throwing the switch and bringing his monster to life. To be fair, Brana is shirtless, his hair is down, he's making a fucking meal of that creation sequence. I was gonna wait until you brought it up, Maeve. Like, I know you love Kenneth Branagh, and I can easily see why, but that scene where he takes off his shirt when he's about to bring this monster to life, and I instantly went, oh, so that's why she loves Branagh so much. Well, my first introduction to Branagh was, of course, Thor, which he's not in, he just directed, and that's a movie I just really vibed on, and then I kept going back watching Branagh, And I came to the conclusion that I think he fucking rules. 
And, like, yes, he is extraordinarily hot in Frankenstein in a way he never was again, unless he maybe shows up in, like, Mamma Mia 3 as, like, some sort of silver fox courting, I don't know, Julie Walters. He will still be shirtless in your movie. You see you see his chest in Tenet. You see the forest. <laughs> God, he's so good in Tenet. But, yeah, he does not reach the same heights of... For example, purely picking someone at random, not picking one of your crushes at all, Chris Hemsworth and Thor. Please please stop bringing up some of the only men I've ever crushed on in my life. (laughs) Actually, just one more side note. Honestly, one of the more bonkers decisions uh, Wales Bride of Frankenstein, one of the greatest movies ever made, did was open with Mary Shelley and Lord Byron and Shelley's husband, whose name escapes me, discussing their works in Frankenstein before Shelley starts telling the story of Bride of Frankenstein as a sequel to the movie and not as a sequel to her actual book. Percy Shelley was her husband, Uh, by the way. uh, What'd he do? He was one of those romantic poets. He was right up there with Byron. I see. Everyone listening to this, I assume, knows that, like, creation myth, if you will, of Frankenstein about how, like, everyone went on a vacation, they had a competition to tell each other scary stories, and that was hers. And the movie opens with her narration from, like, a preface she did to the published version about this story. I don't think the whoever does the narration is credited. I wouldn't have been I wouldn't be surprised if it was Helena Bonham Carter though. It feels like she's the most important woman in the movie. We'll kind of get to that. And so it makes sense for her to have been the one to read that. But yeah, it opens with that and then it just goes straight into the book's framing device, which is a rich guy wanting to get glory for himself decides to fund an exposition uh, expedition to uh, the North Pole and runs into weather problems, crew is getting pissed, and suddenly this dude shows up and he appears to be on the run from some sort of monster, and then he starts telling his story to the captain while dying of pneumonia. Yeah, that's how it starts. I want to note, because this is a story about nerds, that... In the book, he's not looking for the North Pole, he's looking for the Northwest Passage, the trade route that would, like, cut shipping times in half for everyone everywhere, and that was something people were looking for constantly at the time, and it's a lot more of a concrete thing to be looking for, like, this is how this will help than the North Pole would be. I think that's an indicative change. Also, the other thing about the book is that it is told exclusively through letters and diary entries, which, of course, you can't really do in the film, though there are quite a few letters being written and diaries being uh, scribbled in throughout the whole thing. The thing about it is this is a movie that it's trying to be a lot more faithful to Shelley's novel, but... At the same time, it still has to adapt it into a movie, and it's a lot closer to the novel than, like, the popular imagination of Frankenstein, like, which comes mostly from the James Whale movie. It still has to make a lot of adaptational changes, a lot of decisions, a lot of, like, shortening and combining and simplifying, because it's a pretty short book, is Frankenstein, but it's still very deep and complex and... What you're talking about, that epistolary structure, it really serves to get you right in the center of all this like classical gothic family drama stuff that you need to get invested in long before any bringing stuff to life things happen. Yeah, and there's a lot of, like, it's just straight up the life story of Victor Frankenstein. In fact, very little time is actually spent on the actual creation of the creature instead you kind of get some lead up to it like him talking about his studies his professors being like oh this this is a bright young chap and then it just goes to an entry where he's just absolutely horrified at whatever he's done 
We mentioned this as like the first science fiction novel, the foundational text. Something I think is really interesting in the opening is you meet Victor Frankenstein, you see him grow up, he's like the child of Swiss nobility, but he is a sci-fi nerd, even though sci-fi didn't exist. He's a big fan of alchemists, he's a big fan of magicians, like science but not real science he just eats up every single version of that he can given there's no genre called science fiction because he's the hero of the book that invented it and i think that's a really interesting aspect of the story and it's really like indicative of why this was so popular and honestly i don't think it really makes it into the film all that much so victor frankenstein can be like the most Byronic hero ever to be the daughter of Byron. Yeah, like, you just look at how Brana styles himself as Victor Frankenstein. Oh, you mean like me? I had pretty much that exact, like, hair and beard combo like three years ago. It looks way better on him than it does on me. Yeah, like, he is styling himself. He clearly worked out, did, like, a protein diet. Like, he's not, like, Dwayne Johnson jacked but you know he's very fit he's always wearing like incredible costumes that like are exquisitely tailored to his figure like it's safe to say man's had a bit of an ego a deserved one but still if you like and something something they add something they invent out of whole cloth for the movie is there's an early scene which is establishing like oh, he isn't interested in having much fun, really, going out with his family, little brother, his adopted sister, his parents, that kind of thing. He wants to do his experiments. So they go on a picnic in the Swiss Alps, and he sets up a lightning rod, and he turns his whole family into the lightning rod. And I think that was actually kind of a fun scene for me, because it really brought to the forefront that, like, Almost 200 years later, our standards for science fiction work differently. We have different, like, ways to suspend disbelief. And I think this is a good way of establishing, like, in this movie, lightning is magic. Because there are all these special effects. Everyone's, like, got Storm from the X-Men powers. And everyone's just shocking each other for a while, having fun, playing around. And... I thought that was a clever way to establish that as well as give a start to the movie's visual language of like, this is going to be steampunk. And it's funny you say you really like that early scene because as big of a Brana fan and Stan as I am, I really do not like like the first 15 minutes or so of this movie. The first time I watched this, which was a few years ago, I was watching those very early scenes where the boat is in a storm, and I was thinking, oh god, this is going to be a fucking train wreck. It's so stagey. The design of the Arctic and whatnot is just not convincing. It's very funny. This is a ship hitting an iceberg. It is three years before Titanic, and it's only a few steps away from like people carrying a big cardboard ship in front of them. Yeah, and, like, after that, it goes to Frankenstein telling a story, and it's him dancing with his mom, and his mom is like, oh, you are the most handsome, smartest boy in the world, and I'm like, people don't talk like that. And they didn't talk like that in the late 18th century, either. The interesting thing about those early scenes for me in his house is, like, to the point of being stagey, the Frankenstein residence... It's doing this crazy thing with the set design, which is it's building stuff out of actual materials in a way that's trying to make you think it's just a blank sheet of cardboard that's been painted so it looks like those materials. It's this crazy effect, and I was actually really into it when I first watched it. It's like, oh, is he going to be doing this, like, neo-german expressionism thing is that going to be his tribute to the black and white movie and it isn't really borne out by any of the rest of the movie because the sets are clearly going for like big sweeping nature photography and like huge luxuriant sets that kind of thing but that one particular set design choice where like 
you're supposed to take one look and think, oh, that's a wooden board drawn to look like a fancy door. And then you take a second look like, oh, no, that's a fancy door that's been very carefully designed. So at first you think it's a wooden board. That is interesting to me. And I would and I kind of want to see a movie that's all that. Yeah, the design of the Frankenstein Manor is incredible. Like that staircase, I always think about that staircase and how both unsafe and gorgeous it is. And what, in like 10 minutes into the movie, you got Ian Holm, also shirtless, covered in blood, bawling his eyes out on that staircase? After a big, frantic camera circling around a difficult childbirth resulting in a c-section that kills the mom the camera circling around i think this is a good place to do a detour into your cinematography corner Uh, welcome to the cinematography corner i'm into this nerd shit similar to how adam is into his nerd shit so i had some notes about this The cinematographer of the movie is Roger Pratt, an English DP who worked a lot with fairly big-name English filmmakers both before and after his Hollywood breakthrough, which was uh, shooting Tim Burton's Batman. Some of the directors he's worked with, he worked with over the course of his career, uh, Mike Lee, Terry Gilliam, Adam's favorite, and his one Oscar nomination in his career was for Neil Jordan's The End of the Affair. Um, he had a pretty solid career. What I'm wondering is how many of these people asked him to twirl his heart out? Uh, I don't know. Like, I've seen one Neil Jordan movie, which was Interview with a Vampire, and I remember the camera work in that one being very, uh, traditional, um, as compared to what he does on this. This was his only collaboration with Brana, and... Like, he had a really solid career. He shot a ton of blockbusters, but this was the only time he worked with Brana, and to my knowledge, this is the only time he really worked on a horror movie. And because it's Brana, everything is absolutely huge and decked to the nines. Pratt's cinematography is no different. A lot of sweeping shots of real locations for one and even when you get to stage work like you know Ingolstadt really feels like that one was made on a stage or the inside of the Frankenstein Manor it's all absolutely huge and opulent and full of just grandeur which is kind of what Brana's thing is and Like, outside of the ice arctic opening, which I still think looks like absolute garbage, um, the movie does have a very organic, opulent, sort of epic look to it. And considering how we're still in a very digitally shot age where stuff looks very glossy pretty much all the time, it's always refreshing to see something that looks like this. I'm curious to hear your take on the orbital shots. Because there are so many in this movie. That's what I mean when I asked about twirling his heart out. There are so many times when like, the camera is just going to spin around a few characters who are close to each other. And it's not going to stop for a while. And I was curious like, what your take on that is. I mean, there are times where it works a lot better than it does in other stuff. Like the childbirth scene, I like that. The movie just went 0 to 60 pretty much immediately from the opening, calms down a bit, then it gets to Verona's life, and it goes even harder, and you get to that scene, and the result, and it just feels so big, and it really does feel like it's too much too soon, but... We get to, like, other orbital shots that are just kind of, like, dialogue. Like, for example, post uh, the birth of the creature, where Brana is moving out of Ingolstadt, and he has officially proposed to his sister-slash-wife. Yeah, when I mentioned this Victor Frankenstein was a full-tilt Byronic hero, 
I'm including that part of Byron. Yeah, let's just say I feel like he'd be really into step-sibling porn. Uh, I was going to do the help me step bro. I'm stuck on the other side of this mortal coil joke. <laughs> like there are scenes like that where it just kind of feels, you know, like a Spielberg one like it's all staged. Well, everything is got gotten across clearly through dialogue and it's shot in a way that meant you can get a lot across very quickly and keep the movie on budget and whatnot. And that is a much better use of that than in a lot of the bigger, more dramatic scenes where everyone is screaming and crying. Yeah, I see what you mean by that. But yeah, I think it really goes with his excessive, almost, vision of grandeur and luxury with everything in the movie. And I'm not sure that was the best way to go about an adaptation trying to be so faithful because the book, like you say, it's epistolary. It's getting us into these characters' heads. It's really internal. It's really personal. And that means that even though it's about these grand philosophical issues, it's really small. And Branagh isn't really interested in having it be small all that often. Yeah. And speaking of that, I feel like that's a good segue to get into this. Uh, the script was originally penned by Frank Darabont, famously the director of The Shawshank Redemption and a generally well-regarded screenwriter in his own right. And there were re- a few rewrites after Brana came on by a, screen re- by a screenwriter named Steph Lady, whose only other major credit is a producing credit on the Eddie Murphy Dr. Doolittle. Another work of classic British literature about a doctor. <laughs> But yeah, Darabont has opinions on this movie. In fact, he's talked about it at length. The short version is he called it the best script he ever wrote and the worst movie he'd ever seen. And then he elaborated a bit further on it. There's a weird doppelganger effect when I watch the movie. It's kind of like the movie I wrote, but not at all like the movie I wrote. It has no patience for subtlety. It has no patience for quiet moments. It has no patience, period. It's big and loud and blunt and rephrased by the director at every possible turn. Cumulatively, the effect was a totally different movie. I don't know why Brana needed to make this big, loud film. The material was subtle. Shelley's book was way out there in a lot of ways, but it's also very subtle. I don't know why it had to be this operatic attempt at filmmaking. Shelley's book is not operatic. It whispers at you a lot. The movie was a bad one. That was my Waterloo. That's where I really got my ass kicked most as a screenwriter. Brana really took the brunt of the blame for that film, which was appropriate. That movie was his vision entirely. If you love that movie, you can throw all your roses at Ken Brana's feet. If you hated it, throw your spears there too, because that was his movie. And what do you think about this? I mean, I'm sure on the page, it reads a lot more subtle and if Darabont's original draft is out there I'd be interested in hunting it down but at the same time I am clearly not as negative on it as he is in part because I think the stuff the movie does well it does really well like for example the everything with the creature who is played by Robert De Niro is absolutely fantastic And easily the highlights in the movie are the stuff that's mainly focused on him. I definitely agree with that, but I think you can't extricate that character from the fact that he is created from a combination of his mentor played by John Cleese with a beard, Dr. Frankenstein's mentor, and the violent Irishman played by Robert De Niro, who's an 18th century anti-vaxxer who stabs him with a knife. I don't even know if he's Irish. I have no idea what that character's doing. He's doing an accent, which is not something you usually hear Robert De Niro doing. Like, De Niro is one of the great iconic actors of his age and of any age, really. And, like, you look at De Niro, you know what he sounds like. You know what he's doing. With The only time, other time I can think of him, like, really doing an accent or a voice in a movie 
that aim to be prestige like this was Godfather Part 2, where he did a truly excellent impression of Brando playing the same character but older in the prior film. I notice you say the only time he's doing that in a prestige thing, so you don't have to count him playing fearless leader in the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. I figured that would be brought up. (laughs) Of course it is. It's me you're talking to. Uh, But yeah, whatever accent he's doing when he's playing the murderer, I have no idea. Like, Ingolstadt is supposed to be in Germany, Switzerland? Germany, I believe. And he is very obviously not doing German. No one is doing a German accent because, like, that's the mad scientist accent, more or less. And he's trying to get away from that image, even though, paradoxically, there's this huge steampunk section in the movie where, like, you see John Cleese's early experiments into bringing back the dead, and he has a monkey hand that he can bring back to life. And then Frankenstein makes his machine, and it's full of electric eels, and you got this big copper tank with wires and needles and stuff. You think Gore Verbinski saw this movie? In terms of directors who saw this movie, I'm more interested in the fact that, like, Helena Bonham Carter is the sister wife. She has, like, that trademark crazy curly hair. And I'm wondering if that scene where she shows up on the day he's going to bring his creation to life and it's Branagh shirtless, it's all these steampunk contraptions, and it's Helena Bonham Carter looking pallid. And I wonder if that's what got the sparks flying in Tim Burton's head. I mean, it would be like another six, seven years until they work together, but I could definitely see it and see where you're coming from. Yeah. What was their first movie they did together? Was it Sleepy Hollow? It was Planet of the Apes. Oh, my mistake. Okay. But yeah, definitely. It's got all of this that it wasn't in the book and that's not necessarily a problem, but I think it takes away from what the book was trying to do, which is the reason you don't hear how he did it, how I did it by Victor Frankenstein, to quote the young Frankenstein joke. The reason you don't see that is because Frankenstein is telling this story and you know it's going to be a tragedy from the very beginning and he doesn't want anyone following him down that path. Yeah, but also, movies are a visual medium. So you kind of have to. Especially since the creation of the creature is such an iconic bit because of the whale movies and other stuff that followed. So if it wasn't in there, audiences would probably reject it. Like, the movie was generally... Like, I think the movie was a hit, but it wasn't well-received by critics, like, Peter Travers and Janet Maslin had it on their worsts of the year list, but I'm pretty sure it made money. Yeah, it made $112 million on a $45 million budget. I think there are lots of ways you could have done this, and I see why he did it the way he did. But at the same time, I don't think it was 100% necessary, especially when they stick to the book in terms of Robert De Niro's creature, keeping the creation the same sort of, like, if Frankenstein is the Byronic hero, then the creature is the Miltonian hero. There's this part in the book where he actually says, like, you know, one day I found this book lying on the ground. Uh, it, It was called Paradise Lost. And you know what? It's got some pretty interesting ideas in it. In particular, this Satan guy, really thinking about that dude. And... Yeah, you can see it because the character definitely has that kind of thing. Like he is created with the best of intentions and for a while he tries to fill those intentions. But ultimately, due to a number of reasons, he revolts against his creator. And speaking of creation, I want to note that the makeup is impeccable. Because like, yeah, they do go with the body stitched together. He's mostly... Uh, anti-vaxxer robert de niro but there are like various other parts of people stitched on him he has two completely different eyes for example and that's a really interesting 
effect on an actor seeing him like gradually grow more facile at emoting with these two different eyes as like you get to what i think is probably one of the two major highlights of the movie which is the extended sequence where de niro is hiding out at the farm where he learns to speak learns to read learns uh, kindness and generally helps this family in a number of ways like picking their crops for them when the ground is a uh, solid and when they can't see him they're kind to him and you have the interaction with the blind grandfather who is kind to him after he just absolutely fucking wrecks a evil debt collector and but then the rest of the family shows up and they are so terrified of him they chase him away and then straight up leave the house they just abandon it because of how scared they are of him and that is what kind of turns de niro's uh, creation as vengeful and that's a thing in the book and it is that and the conversation between de niro and brana where the creation sort of like confronts uh victor frankenstein's hubris and eventually asks for a companion with the price being we'll just straight i'll just straight up leave you alone for the rest of your life just give me this one thing dude yeah, he asks for someone else like him, someone else who can be someone to be with since no one in the human race is exactly like him. And I agree that that conversation is really the highlight of the movie for me, that time when like they can slow down, they don't have to cut out stuff from the book or streamline it. They can just have these characters really square off and have this philosophical conversation and for me the issue is i hate to invoke this movie talking about this thing you love so much but it reminds me of the hobbit movies in that there's all this excess but really the best parts are when they can stick to the book and have an intimate well-realized well-acted conversation well i'd argue this kind of does this a bit worse because, you know, with the Hobbit movies, there's a lot of production context and how that thing was just a hot mess from beginning to end with Jackson just trying to save the New Zealand film industry while also doing something he gen genuinely he has no take on because he had no prep time to develop a take. Meanwhile, this appears to have been a pretty smooth production all around like there's no like stories of like people dying or gruesome injuries or like actors storming off or last minute recasts or anything i don't think about that as much as you i suppose and that is a fair point but that's why i wanted to bring it up in terms of these adaptations of these classic texts that feel like they have to update and modernize while still simultaneously trying to prevent the most accurate vision possible. And those are always going to be contradictory aims, I think. Like, we love talking about adaptations on this podcast, and I think we're both of the opinion that you should find your take and do it. And Branagh, he definitely has his take, but... In some ways, I think it conflicts with the implicit aim of calling your movie Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is to make something as accurate to this not usually accurate adaptation as possible. Yeah, and it also kind of makes you think about how this was probably greenlit as a result of the success of Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's a kind of similar take where... They're trying to get more sexy with it, trying, um, putting the case that this is the definitive adaptation that really pays tribute to the source, and also... And like Bram Stoker's Dracula, they add a lot of changes to make it more dramatic and romantic, and that's not a bad thing, but 
again, it's contradictory. True. But also, they're like these big, opulent, stylish movies. And I do feel like Coppola's Dracula is more successful in that regard. I think it's better at... It's better at creating a vibe, really. It's better at establishing its own parameters and its own vision of the story than this is because Brana is more a filmmaker who constantly keeps the text at the forefront, no matter how much he's trying to change, I think. And the Coppola Dracula doesn't feel as wedded to the text for all Bram Stoker's name is on the movie. Yeah, and I also love movies that I can just vibe on. If I vibe on a movie that is generally means I really enjoy it. Like I loved the Snyder cut recently, and that was a movie I definitely just vibed on. Do they keep the Frankenstein stuff in that with, with, with grave digging Superman, all that kind of thing. That's there indeed, but it's not like as sort of out of the blue nuts as the Whedon version is because it, because the, the Snyder version puts more work into actually like developing the characters and developing their reasonings behind things. I suppose. Yeah. That would make sense with four hours to work with. And you also kind of get the Frankenstein thing with cyborg in the movie, which in the theatrical version is only like get paid lip service to because so much featuring the character was cut. And then you get a lot more, of Cyborg in the Snyder version, and it's probably the most successful aspect of the whole thing. Yeah, 203 years later, anyone telling this kind of story is still so indebted to Frankenstein. And if you're Brana, if you're this consummate classicist, it's easy to see why you'd want to go, yeah, there deserves to be a faithful adaptation of this story. And... It's so complicated because I'd see why you think that, but at the same time, you're going to have to change stuff. And that means we have to get to the gender zone to talk about that. All right, let's go. It's the gender zone. The gender zone. Welcome to the gender zone. A cross-gender adaptation means there's a lot of gender stuff to talk about, and this is the space to really explore that. And in this case, Brana changed a lot, and some of that is, I think, very dependent on a more masculine perspective, and not just like being separated by almost 200 years and turning the book into a movie and all that. For me, the the biggest one, the most egregious one, is how he changes the ending. In the book, the creature vows to like haunt Frankenstein for the rest of his days when he refuses to make the creature a wife, and the, he ends up killing his sister-wife, Frankenstein's sister-wife, and that leads to their pursuit all over the world that ends up leading into the framing device in the Arctic. But in this movie, what happens instead is he kills his, the sister wife and immediately Brana goes, hey, problem solved. I've got this reanimation device to bring things back from the dead. I'm going to use it on her. And there's this like dramatic sewing montage, the most dramatic sewing you ever saw, you ever sew. And then at the end of it, you got this very clearly Elsa Lanchester-inspired Helena Bonham Carter creature. And the movie turns into late 18th century death becomes her. It's the two guys fighting over the zombie woman. And that's not a decision a woman would have made, I think. Yeah, it's a very silly climax that ends with very silly... Um... It also ends incredibly silly, which is Helena Bonham Carter seeing herself in the mirror and setting herself on fire and then setting the whole house on fire. And then it cuts back to Brana on the boat dying of pneumonia. To me, I think the real problem with that just on its own terms is that 
after that kind of story, I brought up Death Becomes Her, you kind of want the Death Becomes Her ending, where like Victor and the monster go, huh, maybe we're just fighting over nothing, and maybe we should just be like swinging sad bachelors. I don't know. I'm just making this up. But in the book, because it's so much more philosophical rather than character-based, that ending of these people are now wholly devoted towards fighting and killing the other because they can't live with themselves while the other is still alive. They can't forgive themselves for the other continuing to exist, the creator and the creation. It makes a lot more sense than this. Yeah, like, you keep saying I love this movie, that is a bit of an overstatement. I'm sorry to tar you with that brush. It's revenge for you calling Terry Gilliam my favorite. You were saying this before I even mentioned Gilliam, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. How would you describe your feelings about this? Like, I think it's a very interesting, very flawed movie that I still stand up for just because of how strong I find the De Niro performance and the chunks of the film focused on him and his version of the monster i think it's a dark horse for one of his actual best performances and that's saying a lot considering the career he's had and how many great turns he's done throughout his career yeah it's crazy to think that this guy in two years would be in heat actually one year oh really oh it's 94 so yeah there we go like this is the same person and like that's a real testament to both those two performances and his acting because they're on the complete opposite sides of the spectrum because the bad guy in heat the criminal the bank robber he is this figure who can go anywhere but never feels at home anywhere he never feels that kind of connection his house has like no furniture in it his fancy la house and then you get this creature who desperately wants to fit in desperately wants to find someone but because he is a new kind of life he is this created being who's utterly unlike anything then He's not going to find it, especially because he turns to evil pretty quickly. Yeah, and to be fair, it's like a lot of bad happening to him at basically the same time. He gets created, his creator abandons him. He goes out into the world trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. People basically chase him out of town. He escapes finds refuge on a farm, really gets attached to the people living there, helps them out, and even has a friendly conversation with the elderly grandfather, played by um, Richard Briers, one of Brana's favorite guys. And then the rest of the family comes and chases him out, and then just straight up abandons the farm out of fear that they'll see him again. And that is kind of the last straw. So he, he learns about the circumstances through uh, Victor Frankenstein's journal, which was in the coat he stole, and just hoofs it to Geneva to like, you know, show him that what he, his actions have consequences. Yeah, that scene with the two of them is very much, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions, for both of them, really. Also, it is... It was one of two movies I watched yesterday that contained dog murder, so there's that as well. Oh, what was the other one? Wes Craven's Vampire in Brooklyn. There we go. I don't want to sound more down on this movie than I am, and I, as much as I don't want to act like you love it more than you do. Because I like a lot of the same aspects as you. I think we both agree on the parts that are really good, we just, like, disagree on what that means for the whole. We never formally exited the gender zone, and I want to note that there's this whole, like, weird violence angle. They're like, are there two public hangings in this movie or three? I forget. Two, I think, because it's De Niro's 
anti-vaxxer gets murdered and uh, Justine uh, gets uh, murdered by hanging. Yeah, the the creature frames the Frankenstein servant for his killing of Frankenstein's little brother. And she ends up getting lynched, which is definitely not something you usually see in Frankenstein adaptations happening to people who aren't Frankenstein's monster. Like, there is a lot of angry mob content in this movie, and that does feel more indebted to James Whale than it does to the book. Yeah, like, you have to kind of go back to the Whale film because of how just straight-up iconic it is, and also it's a great movie. And it's a great adaptation, I think. It really, even though it doesn't bring across those, like, gothic, Byronic elements, it really gets across the philosophical concepts in a way that works well on film in a way that I don't think really does here. And I also just need to take a second to praise uh, the movie Gods and Monsters, uh, written and directed by Bill Condon. I really gotta see that. Oh, it's fantastic. Was it the the first movie he directed? Uh, It was the second, following a sequel to Candyman. Oh, wow. I didn't actually know that. That's cool. Yep. I think it was Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh. I might have gotten that title wrong. But yeah, all good stuff. Like, what else do we want to talk about while we're still here in the gender zone? Uh, Fails the Bechtel test pretty spectacularly. (laughs) Yeah, that character, the sister wife, her name's Elizabeth, but... It's hard to think of her as anything except a sister wife once that detail becomes so established. And he's like, how do brothers and sisters say goodbye? And they start making out. Yeah. And like the book has like an additional thing to it where, yes, it is his cousin being raised as his adopted sister, but also. Like they're not really cousins. They're like. They're both members of the aristocracy, so they probably have some remote relation, but it's much less weird in the book than they make it here. Yeah, and what ends up, and also in the book, it's made clear that uh, Mama Frankenstein very clearly wants to, is matchmaking these two from an early age, which, 1800s, I guess. Yeah, arranged marriages... Like, it's kind of part of the whole gothic vibe, to go back to the issue of vibes. I've kind of exhausted my thoughts on this movie, I guess. I really do love the makeup. I think about it a lot since I've watched it. Yeah, the makeup rules. And also, one last thing I forgot to talk about. One of my favorite composers, Patrick Doyle, killed it again on this score. Yeah, the monster plays the recorder. Because he hears the blind man playing it and he realizes he can play it. That's an element they add that's not in the book, but I thought it was a very curious idea. That notion of, like, he can read and speak because these are, like, hidden memories of the bodies that he was reconstituted from, that he was brought to life from. He's a new being, but he contains elements of old beings metaphorically, psychically, not just physically. And that is a really cool idea, and I would have wanted to see more stuff like that and, honestly, less steampunk stuff. Yeah, but also, I guess Brana has always been a full maximalist director, so basically everything about this movie comes back to Brana and just how hugely maximalist he is as a filmmaker and i've been watching i'll tell you what's not maximalist his body fat (laughs) but yeah and i've been watching quite a few maximalist works lately between the snyder cut and oliver stones any given sunday so it's also really just helped me realize how much i enjoy maximalist filmmaking even though it's not always going to result in something uh, great. Yeah, maximalist filmmaking can be fun. I'm not going to begrudge you your enjoyment of it. Obviously not. That's not what we do here. But so much of this is 
exactly the kind of thing I like seeing done to these classic works of literature, but a lot of the rest isn't. And so it can't help but feel like a disappointment to me. So what would you say is your favorite um, adaptation of this? Because I definitely have to go back to the whales on this one. I don't think I've seen an enormous number of them. Like I've read the book. I've read lots of like weird takeoff versions and retellings. There's a lot of robot fiction, of course, that's indebted to this. It's such a foundational work that I think there's more value in doing your own version than literally taking that same story and adapting it. True. But also, like, I mainly asked that because I thought you would have gone off on the Danny Boyle Frankenstein play with Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. I wanted to see it, but I wasn't able to. I wanted to see the simulcast version. Yeah, like, I also kind of missed the boat on seeing those, which is a bit of a shame because I really enjoy watching uh, recorded theater productions like a couple years ago when I was in college. I, I did get to see the national theater version of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. That was a blast. Oh, uh, was that the uh, Daniel Radcliffe one? Yeah, it was him. And yeah, he, he's an excellent fit for Stoppard. He does that really well. Yeah, and the, I think the only national theater production I've seen is the more recent uh, one with Ian McKellen, uh, King Lear. Oh, how was that? Oh, that was fantastic. I actually got to go to the National Theater the a little less than a year before everything collapsed. I got to go to London, and I got to see Rory Kinnear as Macbeth. How was that? Glitzy. A lot of it I liked, but like it's by far the highest budget Macbeth I've ever seen. And that's kind of a departure from what where you usually see Macbeth. Very curious to see uh, what Joel Cohen does with it. Oh, yeah, that's going to be fun. Denzel as Macbeth, hell yes. I think Branagh would appreciate that this is the place where our discussion ends up, just talking about the British stage. Yeah, hopefully one day I'll make it out to London, hopefully not run into too many turfs. Yeah, there's a lot to see in London, and there are also a lot of people with awful opinions. But you get those everywhere. True. But back on topic, uh, I feel like we've successfully talked about how we think of this as an adaptation, as a film, and where it fits into the sort of larger canon of the sort of cultural impact that the story and various versions of it has had. So, you think it's time to call it? Yeah, I think so. Mavis, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me uh, on Twitter at I am a something, and that's kind of the main place I am, just tweeting about bullshit. I'm on Twitter at Adam Bumas, A-D-A-M-B-U-M-A-S, and you can't really find me tweeting about anything, because I pretty much never tweet these days. Smart. And yeah, you can find other podcasts from the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad network on Twitter and Instagram at AOAS underscore XX. We're really happy to be on the network with all those other podcasts. And other than that, thanks for listening and have a medium day.